hear the word of God. And they journeyed from Elam. All the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt, then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what is or, or what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So there you see the Sabbath come in. Then Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. But what are we that you complain against us? And Moses said, This shall be seen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and in the morning bread to the full. For the Lord hears your complaints which you make against him. And what are we? Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses spoke to Aaron, say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your complaints. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the, the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaint of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, at twilight you shall eat meat and in the morning you shall be filled with bread and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one, one another, what is it? For they did, they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each One's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons, let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need. And when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up till morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Tomorrow you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long do you refuse to keep my commandments? 
and my laws. See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out on of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed. And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it to be kept uh, for your generations that they may see the bread with which I feed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it uh, up uh, before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna, manna 40 years until they came to, the, to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you again for your word. Always uh, we, we find rich blessing to be found in your word uh, and, and great spiritual truths uh, to be uncovered. And pray that by faith we might indeed uncover them uh, this, this evening. And to have the spiritual discernment which they lacked and even which in the Gospels the disciples lacked. Lord, you have so much more for us than just bread. Let us see it, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, we need to remember, and we'll see over and over again, that Israel's in the wilderness. I, I, I don't feel the need to remind you every time that's analogous to our situation today in the church. And so, uh, as we find ourselves in the wilderness, we find uh, many analogous spiritual lessons. It was for them, as we saw last time, so here, their wilderness experience, a mixture of blessing and testing. Periods of refreshment were followed by periods of trial. And so we find her at the end of chapter 15 in Elam, an oasis in the desert, only to find her journeying on in chapter 16, verse 1, confronted with a fresh trial. Again, periods of blessing, periods of testing. And the wilderness was a constant combination of these things. If in chapter 15 the trial was a lack of water or of good water, by which God tried her faith in the desert, so now it was a lack of food. They had journeyed now for a month, and their supply of food was gone. What happens next is a surprise to precisely no one. We do not read that they exercised faith and trusted in God. I'm not sure that we ever read that from this point on. Or looked for another mighty work in the wilderness, which they had every reason to expect and which we find God in fact does. No, we simply read in verses 2 and 3 of their murmurings, their groanings, their complainings. But from this point, from verse 3... Many highly interesting things happen. And I want to divide the remaining verses under three main headings. The first is the supply of bread, which in itself is, uh, as I say, highly interesting. That God gives them bread and yet, uh, well, they make too much of the bread. It's one of the things we see when we come to chapter 6 of John's Gospel. Well, God promises that he will reign Bread from heaven is a kind of miracle. He hears their complaint and he answers it. And we see here the bread once more is a test by which God will see if they are ready to obey. Verses 4 and 5, the Lord said, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain quote every day that I may, I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. 
So his provision also represented a test as it did with the waters. They must gather as he sends. Gather it in such a way that they demonstrate that they are trusting in God to provide in his own way. One of the things that we notice here in the wilderness, we find it also in the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm going to be referring to chapters five and six of or I think it's just chapter six, actually, of Matthew's gospel. A fair bit in this sermon. And that is that God's provision is ever connected with his laws. If you think of that chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter six, that is what you find there. Jesus is describing throughout uh, that chapter life in the kingdom of God and that both aspects are included in the kingdom of God. God's provision, which we trust fully, but also God's law, which we are prepared to obey fully. You can never separate them. That's what we find in verses four and five. I'm going to provide, but I want you to obey in my provision. And to find in my provision a motive for obedience. So you cannot depend on him to feed you, but then ignore the way he tells you to live. But I want to notice here certain things about the bread, which they called manna. For one thing, when we see the bread as God's heavenly provision, we immediately think of what Jesus says in the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Again, Matthew chapter 6. That is a well-known petition, one which we say, in fact, every Lord's Day. Although, if you were to really think about it hard, you might wonder why it's there. It seems a little bit out of place. The petition is, give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you compare that to the other five petitions, I think you would say uh, that it seems meager compared to the other things we're praying for. Uh, But perhaps not if we understand how the kingdom of God functions. And Exodus 16 helps us to see why even bread is included in the blessings of the kingdom of God. We have to recognize that For all of the gifts that God, the good gifts that God gives his church, bread is included. That is, God is a God who looks after a temporal welfare. In fact, that is the whole point of Matthew chapter 6. He is not so unkind as the Israelites suspected to save our souls only to kill our bodies in the wilderness. No, he is a wise and loving father who looks after the whole man, not just the inner man, but the outer man. And so our view of the kingdom of God must not be so spiritual that we neglect the needs of the outer man, or that we think that the kingdom of God has nothing to do with the outer man, seeing that God does not. God doesn't hold that kind of view. God looks after the outer man. And when we become his children by faith, then the outer man comes under his loving care, just as much as the inner man. So God feeds our spiritual appetites with his word. He nourishes the inner man with the pure milk of the word. But he also looks after the outer man and feeds him too. Listen again to the last three petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, and deliver us from evil. All of these are seen as aspects of the same life and the same blessing. That is the life and the blessings lived out in the kingdom of God, which Jesus came to bestow. The believer, Jesus tells us, is to pray for God's provision in full recognition that our father knows our needs before we ask him. So much of that great chapter, in fact, is devoted to God's looking after our temporal welfare. Think of the end of the chapter where Jesus speaks on the futility of worry. Because as the Lord uh, clothes and feeds the birds of the air, can he not do so for the sons of the kingdom? I like how Ritterboss puts it when speaking of these three petitions seen as one and so including the bread 
he says that they are entirely conceived of from the standpoint of the salvation of the kingdom. I think that's clear with the manna. I don't think anyone could deny that when you come to Exodus chapter 16. But I wonder if you view the meals that you eat each day in the same way, even though Jesus teaches us to do so. We must have a view of the kingdom of God, which is comprehensive. And to see every blessing which we receive as gifts from heaven. And to never conceive of or seek, of any, uh, seek any blessing apart from the hand of our Father who art in heaven. That is what Jesus is teaching us. The outlook of faith, which includes the food that we eat. It was the same test that Israel was facing in the wilderness. And what God does for some by miracles, he does for others by providence. But it is the same hand which feeds and the same motive, namely his loving care for the church. The provision of a father who knows what you need. But then we also see in this a type of what Jesus expresses as daily bread. Looking at the fourth petition, we see uh, that word daily, which is something we also find in the wilderness with the manna, which is another spiritual lesson that we find here in the way God provided the bread. Just as Jesus teaches us the same lesson in the way he teaches us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, as he says in that same chapter, sufficient for the day is its own troubles. And sufficient, too, as we find here, is its own supply. God was teaching Israel here to be content with whatever they had that day, trusting God fully to provide for tomorrow. That comes out clearest, uh, by the way, on the Sabbath, but we'll come to that later. But that is exactly the mentality Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount. Once we become fully conscious of God's power and his fatherly willingness to feed us, there is really no need, uh, he says, to take any thought of tomorrow or to worry if there will be enough. He will give us just the right amount that we need. I've never known him to do otherwise. Yes, but at the same time, a deeper spiritual principle was present here. And that was how, as God expressed later on in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, and as Jesus quoted in one of his temptations, that man does not live by bread alone. Only what we discover in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, is that the manna itself was meant to teach them this lesson. The miracle of the bread in the wilderness. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. There, if we couldn't see it in the text, it's spelled out for us a deeper spiritual truth. In sending the bread, God was teaching them that life consists in more than bread. And if anything, to take their food or take their thought off of food. And to look to the providence that supplied it and then to depend on that. In other words, to depend on the hand of their father who art in heaven. Now, this is also seen in what he says in verses six and twelve. Moses said to Aaron uh, or Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel at evening, you shall know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse twelve. I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. What the Lord was teaching them through the provision of the bread was that he was the Lord and that they ought to depend upon him. 
And to realize that life consists of more than bread and food. And that if God led them out of Egypt, he could surely feed them in the wilderness. But again, food ought to have been the least of their worries. The greater test was whether they would trust him to bring them into the promised land. Something we later see in John chapter 6, which we read earlier in the service, is how Israel was still making the same mistake. They still thought the kingdom of God consisted of bread. It's almost embarrassing to say that, but that's the actual truth. Jesus had just fed the multitude, and they were once again making the mistake of their forefathers. Thinking that if Jesus could feed them, then he must be the the Messiah. That was the decisive proof. That was all they needed, and that was all they wanted. Just keep giving us bread, Jesus. The crowds were like the disciples another time. Following Jesus feeding the multitude as well. Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees to the disciples. And they actually thought he was talking about bread. How slow indeed we are to understand the deeper truths of the kingdom. And yes, Jesus still says, how is it that you still don't understand? Manna from heaven is one thing. But the great gift of God is that he should give us food which satisfies forever. And never makes us hungry again. How could you fail to see that as the great point of the manna? And so let us reason from the lesser to the greater. If such power can fill my belly for one day, can it not do so forever? Listen to how Jesus puts it again in John chapter 6, verse 26. Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 41, I am the bread which came down from heaven, and so forth. He even goes so far as to say this. This is the most shocking statement of all, but it really captures uh, whether you understand the miracle of the manna. Most assuredly, I say to you, verse 53, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? It's the same thing that God was teaching Israel in the wilderness. What he's saying seems shocking. I want you to eat my, my body and I want you to drink my blood. Shocking at least to the carnal mind, to the one who has no spiritual discernment. Of course he isn't talking about physical eating any more than he was talking about bread when he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But those who think of the kingdom of God in terms of bread would think that, wouldn't they? No, he's talking about a spiritual eating. A partaking of that eternal life from Jesus which he offers to needy souls. And which he provides in himself. Yes, and he who does this, he says, will find his flesh is food indeed. And his blood is drink indeed. For whoever does so, whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood after a spiritual fashion. That is, whoever comes unto Jesus and partakes of him has eternal life. And he will be satisfied and filled forever. But let me notice one more thing about the bread. Look at what happened when they ignored the command concerning the gathering of bread. 
verses 19 and 20. It's spoiled. Which is another spiritual lesson for the church to observe. That there is no blessing in God's provision where his laws are ignored. And he will turn his provision against you if you do so. Though he pours his provision in your bag, you will find there's a hole in the bottom. And you will never be satisfied by his providence or find any real blessing therein until you learn to walk in his ways. Again, remember the connection between his laws and his provision. But the next thing I would notice as a second major point is the glory of God. It's one of the things that stands out here very strongly. The glory of God, which appears in many ways throughout this incident. Here, God was contending for the faith of the church, that they might plainly see and believe that God was their God. And especially that as they beheld his glory, they would worship him and serve him as their God. First, uh, we see it in many ways, but first we see it appear in the cloud, in their actual seeing. Verse seven. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord. Verse 10. Now it came to pass as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. How it appeared, the text does not say. We know that the cloud was glorious, but this was something more. Although in saying that, we realize it's sad that it was so sad that the pillar of the cloud was not enough. That the pillar now had become to them familiar and they had ceased to behold the glory of God in the pillar itself. And so there was some special manifestation of God's glory that became necessary. And yet still we find God accommodating himself to their unbelief. He caused his glory to shine forth in their seeing with their eyes. They beheld the glory of God to the help of their faith like Thomas. Second, it appears in his word ministered to them through Aaron and Moses. Time and again, what we notice in the Exodus is that God is speaking to his people. We cannot read Exodus without noticing this. They are unbelieving. Yet God persists in calling them to himself and instructing them in the right way. He speaks through his prophets Aaron and Moses. He speaks today through his word read and preached. Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That is why so much uh, so much importance is attached to hearing in the book of Hebrews in the earlier chapters of that book, because that is exactly what the people didn't do. God was speaking, but they weren't listening. And that's why they didn't have faith. Verse 20, notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. And really, as we see, they never did. The point that I'm making here is not just that God speaks in every age to his people, but that as he speaks, his glory is revealed. To the church to have God speak to us, beloved, is always glorious. It is always to behold his glory, not so much by sight as by faith or by hearing. It is more than anything else, as we read in the first verses of the book of Hebrews, a revelation of the glory of his son. Let me read those verses. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. God, who at various times and various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by his prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had himself purged all sins, sat down at the right hand, the majesty on high. Jesus is the brightness of his glory. 
And through the word of God, he is revealed to the church. And so to hear the word of God is as much a beholding or a seeing of his glory as it was to behold his glory in the pillar. And if anything, if you think of Thomas, it is more so since Jesus attaches greater blessing to the one who hears but doesn't see. Blessed are those who hear but do not see, he says to Thomas. Those who by faith perceive God's glory only by what they hear without seeing anything. Third, it appears in his provision, as we see in verses 7 and 12. You will behold my glory in the manna and the quails. Uh, Fourth, it is connected with his name, the Lord. As he says as well in those two verses, verses 7 and 12. For God to show us what it means for him to be Jehovah is for him to show us his glory. But most striking of all, I think, from these verses is how his glory appears in that He hears. Verse 7. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your complaints against the Lord. Verse 12. I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. He wants the church to behold his glory in that he hears. Something here is something that is truly glorious about God, that nothing escapes his notice. Now, there's something frightful in that as well. Moses is saying to them in another verse, uh, verse eight, he says, you thought you were complaining against me, but in reality, you were complaining against him. But even still, we ought to notice his glory. Everything that is uttered, everything that we think or feel, he notices, he hears. We may complain against his ministers as Israel here and his providence, but he hears. Again, we ought to notice this fact against the backdrop of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. That when we pray, we should recognize, Jesus says at the beginning of that chapter, that God hears our prayers. That he takes notice of what we say and what we need. And he says we should pray in such a way as to be heard by him and not by men. In other words, the outlook of our devotion and our spiritual exercises should reflect the fact that we recognize this glorious fact about God, that he hears. Go pray in secret, Jesus says, and there God will hear your prayers. And we see here that the evidence that he hears is that he answers their prayers. And in this case, they didn't even pray. And still, he answered their complaints. He did not leave them to die in the wilderness as they suspected. He was far far kinder and gracious than they had imagined. But is that not the prayer sometimes of the believer? Oh, God, hear my prayer. You find that in the Psalms sometimes. God, are you listening? I think we find Job saying that a few times in Job as well. Well, let the believer solemnly consider this. His whole relationship to his father who art in heaven, as Jesus says. That his glory is not so great that he ignores the prayers of his saints. That is to conceive of his glory wrongly. It is rather that he is so glorious that he cannot but take notice of every condition into which the church falls. And his glory is revealed in the notice which he takes and the care which he shows. But finally... His his glory appears as the divine lawgiver. That's another thing that we find throughout these verses. The commandments, the laws, which he tells Israel, I want you to walk in these. I want you to be careful to keep my law. 
But especially, as I just said, verse 4, I want you to walk in it, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Here we see the law once again, rightly. Not as Israel saw it, especially in the days of Jesus, but also here as a mere external code, but rather as a way of life, as a pattern of behavior, as an expression of devotion and love for God. As a means by which, if you think in terms of the Lord's provision, we express our humble dependence on the Lord's safe keeping and his provision for us in the wilderness. The man who keeps the law is the man who trusts the Lord. But that brings me to the final uh, interesting point that we find here, and that is the Sabbath. We find a real prominence here given uh, to the Sabbath in connection with the manna. And so I have to say a few things about the Sabbath. We notice that in the way he provides the man, he tells them to keep the Sabbath. He says, I want you to gather a double portion on, on the sixth day and to gather nothing on the seventh. I want you to keep the Sabbath. In other words, again, let me say, in my provision, I want you to keep my laws. Now, there's several things that we could notice about the Sabbath. This being the first mention of the Sabbath in the book of Exodus, though it isn't in the Bible. The first thing we would notice is its centrality. In giving the law, one of the things uh, that you will notice throughout the Old Testament, whether as Moses gives the law in in Exodus through Deuteronomy, or as the prophets later will recount the law, the laws of Moses and so forth, is the centrality which the Lord gave to the Sabbath in the giving of his law. You can't read the Old Testament uh, without noticing that very plainly. That was something that struck me very early on as a Christian in reading the Bible all the way through. That the Sabbath is deeply important to God. And it ought to be deeply important to us. God, through his prophets, later condemns them over and over that they had not kept his Sabbaths. And when we see the place of the Sabbath at the beginning in the creation account, that the world was not only made by God, but that time itself was structured after his work of creation. And that on the seventh day, after six days of creation, he rested, Genesis chapter uh, 2, verse 3, and there he hallowed the Sabbath. Perhaps it should not seem so strange to us that the Sabbath assumes uh, a central place in the giving of the law. And then when we consider, that was the other passage. It just came to me, Hebrews chapter 4. I could have read that as well. Well, try to think of that in, in, in the point I'm making here. When we consider how, that, how they were seeking to enter the promised rest themselves. I'm going to allude to that quite a bit here in a moment, though I won't read the chapter. But Israel here was seeking to enter the promised rest of heaven, typified in the land. Well, then it becomes doubly clear how central the Sabbath was to be to the people of God and why it was so central. But that brings me to the next point concerning the Sabbath, and that is the antiquity of the Sabbath, which I just mentioned. This isn't the first mention of the Sabbath, and yet the place that uh, we find it here is a little bit surprising and it's worthy of note. There are some wishing to point to the Sabbath as connected solely with the Old Covenant, that is to say solely with Moses, solely with Israel, something which is then abrogated and set aside with the New Covenant and Christ, seeing it as a purely ceremonial ordinance of the Mosaic Law. There's only one problem with this. Not only do we find the Sabbath in the Garden... But we find it even before Israel reached Mount Sinai. The first mention of the Sabbath in Exodus is not Exodus 20 in the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment. But it's Exodus 16. 
Well, here I find Dabney's comment especially helpful. Speaking of the chapter we're considering in an essay he wrote on the Sabbath. He says, in Exodus 16, verses 22 through 30, where we we read the first account of the manna, we find the Sabbath observance already in full force. And no candid mind will say that that, uh, that this is the history of its first enactment. It is spoken of as a rest which the people ought to have been familiar. The drift of the whole narrative shows that the Lord was now by Moses referring the people to their former knowledge of the sanctity of the Sabbath as an explanation of their finding no manna on that day. No fair reader can compare the words with Genesis chapter 2 verse 3 without seeing this. God wasn't instituting the Sabbath here. It doesn't read like that at all, in fact. But when he refers to the sixth and the seventh day, collect a double portion on the sixth, rest on the seventh, he wasn't so much instituting the Sabbath as he was enforcing a command which they already knew and with which they were already familiar. And then when we come to Sinai and find the first word of that command, remember, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, this point becomes doubly certain. The Sabbath didn't begin with Moses. It began with God at the creation of the world. And so it didn't begin at Sinai. It didn't begin uh, a few, I don't know, a few days before, uh, whenever this happened. It began at creation, as the Genesis narrative plainly indicates. And so God presents our duty to keep the Sabbath in terms that call to mind what we already know. That God created the world in six days and he rested on the Sabbath. And so much then for any notion that the Sabbath is ceremonial and it belongs exclusively to Israel and that it was abrogated with the coming of Christ. The Sabbath, speaking of its antiquity, is as ancient as the world. And so it is the duty of God's people to remember the Sabbath as they keep it. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember its original institution. And especially remember that so long as a Sabbath rest remains for the people of God to enter, that is the Sabbath rest of heaven, where we join and enter into God's Sabbath, that we ought to keep our Sabbaths as a foretaste of the glories to come. Well, another thing that we could notice here, as we find in the text, is that the Sabbath represents rest. Verse 23, he says, tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. And I think we find that same language uh, in verse 30. The Sabbath is, and I spoke of it last time this way, it is a time of refreshment in the wilderness, like the oasis in Elam, a day for weary pilgrims to gather their strength uh, in the race they have to run. But rest is surely a bigger idea than that. It isn't just a little bit uh, of rest we get on Sunday, the nap we take or whatever. Sabbath is also, as I've just been saying, a heavenly foretaste of the eternal rest that awaits the people of God. Again, if you read Hebrews 4, you'll see that clearly. And with every passing Sabbath, we are drawing nearer to that end. We are coming closer to entering into our Sabbath rest, which remains for the people of God. I would also notice that without this rest, thinking again of the argument of the book of Hebrews or the exhortation, that without the Sabbath rest, our weekly Sabbaths, we are more likely to falter and to turn back. In other words, to apostatize, as Israel did here in the wilderness. Sabbath breaking and apostasy are very closely connected. And I don't think that point is difficult to make, because 
the one who doesn't value his Sabbaths, is not seeking his Sabbath rest in heaven. And that was Israel's folly. Israel did a very poor job of keeping Sabbath. We even see here uh, that as they're reminded to keep the Sabbath, they immediately begin to break it. Verse 27. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. We never really see Israel doing any better. And this was one of the reasons Israel fell in the wilderness and never entered the promised rest. Rather than seeking the promised Sabbath rest, she always sought for more from this life and this world. She sought to gather on the Sabbath. Do we see here, beloved, how our Sabbaths become a mirror for what is in our hearts and where we hope to get and where we're going? The one who wants to get to heaven will use his Sabbaths well. He will store up much heavenly treasure for himself on that day. But he will gather little from this world. But the one who seeks only to get more of this world for himself on his Sabbaths will find he knows nothing of the blessing of Sabbath rest in this life or in the life to come. Connected with this is the idea of provision, also preparation. Notice how God tells them to gather more the day before, the sixth day. That tells them to trust the Lord to feed them on Sabbath. But also to use the day before as a day of preparation. So the Puritans taught. The day before Sabbath is a day of preparation, especially the evenings before. I doubt I need to remind you of this, that a poorly used Saturday will yield a useless Sunday. Or at least it won't yield a very fruitful Sunday, will it? We need to gather on Sunday so that we might, or excuse me, we need to gather on Saturday so that we might rest on Sunday. I mean, gather our bread so that we don't have to do so on Sunday. I won't try to be specific here. I think you catch my meaning. But this practice also reveals how we simply leave it to the Lord to provide. How we trust in his provision so completely that we are willing not to labor one day in seven. Once it is our commitment to take this day off from our worldly labors. I've known people to say that they can't afford to take Sundays off from work. That they have to do so. Well, let me tell you, that is nothing but unbelief. God is saying to Israel, if you commit yourself to no earthly labor on Sabbath, I promise you will be well provided for. Just you wait and see. God is able enough to multiply our labors, to give us more by six days than by seven. Yet another test which Israel failed. The Sabbath is intended to teach us this, the provision of our Heavenly Father and our willingness to trust Him. But this is a lesson Israel never learned, and it is a lesson many still never learn today. They are always seeking to get more and more out of this world, which their Sabbaths more than any other day reveal. Rather than resting and letting God have His say in their lives. And so I say again, there is nothing that so reveals what is in our hearts, both our relationship to God and to this world, our relationship to this life and the next, as how we use and how we keep our Sabbaths. I remember Sinclair Ferguson saying uh, in a seminary course that the way we spend our Sabbath shows as much how we use the other six days as it does in reverse. In other words, it reveals the whole of our lives. It lays us bare. The use of our time, our commitments, our faith, and so forth. And yet so many of us are like Israel when God said to them, verse 28, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? But finally, I would notice this. 
in closing, verse 29. See, for the the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place the seventh day. Did you ever think to think of the Sabbath as a gift? To think of the Sabbath like you did the manna as part of God's provision, something that he gives the church, a gift which our heavenly father gives us for our well-being. I give you the Sabbath. Why don't you keep it? Why don't you take your rest and trust me? Both blessings, the bread and the Sabbath are given to us in the wilderness by our heavenly father to sustain us, to support us, to help us to run our race. I wonder if we'll ever learn to look at our Sabbaths like this. Or, or if we will keep on looking at Sabbath as standing in the way of what we really want to be doing. Here indeed, as I say, is yet another test whether we will walk in his law or not. Verse 4. Whether we keep the Sabbath or no. Amen. And let us stand together and sing hymn number 501.